following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Hey, good morning, Faith Bible Church. And you can open up God's Word to the book of Ruth. It is... Uh, my joy and honor to be here this morning. My name is Josh Petrus. I know many of you. Uh, I was the high school pastor here many, many moons ago. And now I'm the high school pastor up at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. And it is a, uh, a privilege to be here. I, I feel like, uh, you know, even though Katie and I left about seven years ago now, we still keep finding our way back here. I, I did junior high camp. So those of you who had junior hires last month, um, that was a wild ride doing junior high camp the day my baby was born, so that was, that was interesting. Um, and then I was with the Collegians down in Oceanside at the end of May, so uh, our heart is always with you guys. We love this church, always thankful for what's going on. And yeah, it's funny, I mean, I used to, uh, I used to play basketball here, and now I'm playing here. So in fact, if you look at the banners over here, I am responsible for none of them. Uh, none of them. So... It is, it is what it is. Uh, why don't you take your Bible and turn to the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth, that little book in between Judges and 1 Samuel. Book of Ruth is we're going to be today. And I understand that you guys have been doing a series looking at small books of the Bible and tackling the whole book together. And I, I feel like I've been given quite the task this morning because I understand that a few weeks ago, Nigel taught 2 John, 13 verses. Patrick did 3 John, 15 verses. Sean did Philemon, 25 verses, in two weeks. John last week did Jude, which is 25 verses. That's good. I have been tasked with doing Ruth, which is 85 verses long. But these things happen to you when you're a youth pastor. And uh, they happen again. And in fact, I'm not sure that that's totally unlike the sort of uh, bias maybe people have against the book of Ruth. When I say we're looking at the book of Ruth this morning... I know there's a handful of different reactions out there. Some people feel, well, okay, I could put up with an Old Testament book with one week. The book of Ruth is kind of strange. It's part of the Bible we stay away from a little bit. It's got weird, like, dating and marriage advice going on. Um, There's all sorts of strange things. And and some of you, for sure, for sure, when I say turn to the book of Ruth, you're like... I guess I'll listen to the girl book of the Bible for one day. I know, I know, man, that's what you're thinking. That's what you think as you come into the book of Ruth. Didn't know we were coming to a women's Bible study, but I hope to convince you that that's, that's not the case this morning. Uh, because as we know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God, that the book of Ruth is part of God's word. And what I want you to see this morning is the book of Ruth shows us again what God is like. Uh, you need the book of Ruth. A lot of misconceptions about the book of Ruth. Uh, The book of Ruth's main human character, as you'll see, isn't even Ruth. It's a woman named Naomi. But the main character of the book isn't even Naomi. It's God himself. And it shows us who God is. And primarily, here's what we get to answer this morning, is what is it like for a believer to live under God's care? What is it like to be under the fatherly affection of God? Or maybe just said a different way, when life is really difficult, is God still doing what's best for me? Do I still believe that? And what I'm hoping for you to see this morning is what it's like to be able to call God Father and to trust in Him and hope in Him in all seasons. Book of Ruth is theology in real life. 
So you can go read a theology book about what God is like and get all sorts of answers and lists and definitions, or you could just read Ruth and see what it's like in real time to be under God's care. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So we're going to move fast. We're going to cover the full book. We're going to look at Ruth chapter 1 through 4, and you're going to see this is an amazing story. Now, it is a story about life and death. It's a story about hopelessness and then hope for today and hope for the future. It moves quickly, and it's an incredible story. And as we start, I want to read verses 1 to 5 to set the scene. Verses 1 to 5. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Word of God reads, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. Now they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then Malon and Kilian also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So reads God's very word. Let's pray as we consider it together this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we do not have to guess what you're like, but that you tell us what you're like according to your word. We're so thankful uh, that you do not leave us to guess at your revelation, but God, we can know you and know what it's like to know you. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would demonstrate your goodness to us in showing us yourself in the book of Ruth. Help us to see you now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we have four points on that robust, detailed outline I gave you, and we're going to kind of summarize each one of these chapters with one key word, one key word for each chapter. Let's call Ruth chapter one, you can call it struggle. You can call Ruth one, struggle. Many of you know the story of Ruth chapter one. Naomi loses her husband and her two sons. She is left only with her daughters-in-law. She returns to Israel, it says in verse 6, she returns from the land of Moab because she had heard that the Lord had visited there. And by the way, you will hear me reference the Lord's name differently. If you look there in your Bible, verse 6, you will see LORD, all caps, capital L, and then small cap, O-R-D. That, is the, that, that means that in the Hebrew there, that's the word Yahweh, God's covenant name. So if you hear me say that, that's what I'm referring to right there. But we see that she returns to the land. And we see that after a while, she tries to send her daughters back to their own land. I have nothing to offer you, Orpah and Naomi. That, uh, that Orpah returns home, but Ruth strangely remains. That's verse 15. That Naomi says to her, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. When I, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you from me. 
So it's this amazing thing where she's, she sends away her daughters-in-law, one leaves, one remains, this strange sort of loyalty. She then returns to, Jeru- or to Bethlehem, which is where we pick up the story. We pick it up in verse 19. This is Naomi's sort of homecoming. This is her reunion. And what do the women of the town say? All the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi, the one that's been missing for 10 years? What is Naomi's response? Verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since Yahweh has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Notice what she says. She says, do not call me Naomi. Your Bible there will have a footnote. That means pleasant. She says, instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, God has dealt bitterly with me. I left full. I left with a husband. I left with boys. I come back with none of those. So do not call me pleasant, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. El Shaddai has shattered me, you could say. That's, that's the language that's happening here. And I know right off the bat what some of you would want, how some of you would want to respond in this situation. Some of you would say, Naomi, come on. That's not the way to rejoice in the Lord. Don't you know Romans 8, 28, Naomi? Right? Don't you know Philippians 2, do all things without complaining? Philippians 4, rejoice at all times. Don't you know how wrong your view of God is? You are ready to sign up Naomi for some nuthetic counseling right now. You are ready to just walk her through this and help her see why all her sins are wrong here. But before you do that, let's just stop and consider the situation. Let's think about, Naomi's a complex character, and you see that here in chapter 1. First of all, before you're ready to give advice out of the affection of your heart, think about what's happening in her life. She's lost her husband. We don't know who made the plans for them to leave Bethlehem and go to the land of Moab, but she's lost the one that she started a family with. She's lost her children. Her sons, in fact, verse 5 there, you read that both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children. The word there, children, isn't just children, it's like the word boys. Malon and Kilion weren't just random dudes that died in Moab, they were Naomi's boys, and they've died. Here's another concern. There's no grandbabies in this situation. Ten years, we don't know how long the, these men were married to Orpah and Ruth, but there are no grandchildren, which means the family line is going to die out, which means the property that belongs to the family line is going to go to another family. Their appointed line, which meant so much to the people of Israel, would fall away. And so what you see in verses 1 through 5 is not just, oh man, tough tragedy, you know, Good thing the Lord provides, right? It's not just a, a small thing that happened this weekend. It's that her, her past has been erased and her future looks bleak, right? Because now who's going to provide for these women, right? These women are going to need to figure out life. And it's not like Naomi could enlist at Bethlehem Community College to take some classes and roll up her sleeves and work a night job. There's no stimulus package coming for Naomi to help her out through this situation. And so what's going to happen to these women financially? Where are they going to live? 
here's just another situation. Who is going to protect these women? Did you, did you notice verse 1, the setting of when this happened? Verse 1, it says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, or when the judges judged. Do you know what it was like to be a woman in the time of the judges? Have you read the book of Judges? It is a dangerous time to be a woman. It is a dangerous time to be an unprotected woman. And so let's be careful before we jump on Naomi too quickly because she was a wife and she was a mother and now she's neither of those. And yet in the midst of this, you start to see her view of God unfold. And though her view is not perfect, her view is not totally wrong either. So what do we know about Naomi? What does she believe about God? Well, Naomi absolutely believes that God is sovereign. There's there's no doubt in her mind, right? She she believes what Psalm 115 says. Psalm 115.3 says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Nothing happens, nothing comes to pass unless He either ordains or allows it to do so. He is the one who, uh, according to Isaiah 45.7, forms light and creates darkness. He makes well-being and creates Calamity. God is in control. She totally believes that. Nowhere does she think that God is absent. Here's the second belief. She absolutely believes that God is punishing her. She believes that God is punishing her. Verse 13, she says at the end there, Know my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of Yahweh has gone forth against me. She believes that God is made her life hard, has made her life bitter. Is God punishing her? You know, theologians, commentators will debate on that. They'll say like, well, there's a, there's a famine in the land. That must mean the land's under judgment. Maybe. We don't know. But we do know at least that Naomi thinks that God is punishing her. And yet that's still not everything. Because take a look at verses 8 and 9. This helps us understand Naomi and what is it that she understands about who God is. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you. So this is before Orpah has gone back. This is when she's trying to send them back. Return each of you to her mother's house and may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Notice what she believes. She believes that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God who deals kindly with people. That word there, deal kindly, is, a, is an important Hebrew word. It's hesed. It's loyal love. It's faithful love. It's a, it's a love that's proactive and doesn't fluctuate over time. Naomi believes that Yahweh is a God who shows that kind of love. He doesn't just show that kind of love to Israelites. He doesn't tell these women of Moab, go back to Moab and may Chemosh bless you with a new life. That would make sense. That would have been the God of the Moabites. No, it's the Yahweh's God that's an international reign. And I want you to go back to your land and may Yahweh, the one true God, bless you. And so now let's kind of tie these thoughts together. What does Naomi believe? Number one, she absolutely believes God is sovereign. Number two, She believes that God shows hesed, loving kindness, favor to people. And number three, she believes that God has made her life very hard. Now, what do we do what do we do with these these thoughts here? I'm not telling you to be like Naomi. 
Uh, I'm, not, I, I'm not telling you to be a Naomi. She's bitter and she's going to fix things out later. But notice what she's doing. Notice what she's doing in the struggle with faith. She's clinging to God. She's still holding on to truths that she know are true. Right? So many people, when life goes hard, what do they do? Well, I guess God doesn't really exist anymore. The Bible's not true because my circumstances undo what's been told to me about God in this situation. Naomi's not doing that. Right? She's not right. And she's going to get fixed in chapter 2. But I want you to see is that when life gets brutal, what you have here is someone still clinging, still struggling, because what is true about God still remains true. Friends, God's character doesn't change just because your circumstances did. Now, how you interpret that character might be incorrect. But what Naomi has here is a right view of who God is. She has a right view of it. In fact, it's these things that she believes about God that will correct her perspective in chapter 2. I think that's just a good application for those of us that are discipling and counseling and investing into others. That we don't need to get someone to say right away after the worst tragedy of their life to get them to sing Amazing Grace with a smile on their face. But to continue to push them into the character of God and to cling to who He is. And again, as I said, that just because circumstances change, His character hasn't. There's more to say here, but let's, let's keep moving. Let's move to chapter 2 now. And the rest of the story is great because it's about this woman, Naomi, who says she's empty. And I just want you to see the way that God fills her up. That by the end of the story, she is not empty and could in no way say that she is empty. So Ruth chapter 2, and there's a word I want to use here. The word is going to be providence. Providence is going to be our word here. Now what's interesting is the reality is that God has not really left Naomi empty. If she were to stick out her elbow, she would pop Ruth in the ribs, which is God's clear provision for her life. And if you look at the end of verse 22 of chapter 1, it says that they're coming back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So there's going to be food, but you're going to see even more how God is going to provide for these widows, in particular how He's going to provide for Naomi. So Chapter 2, verse 1, the story sort of stops, and we get this insider information. It says, now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a relative, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. All right, quick aside. Okay, back to the story. Verse 2, and, the, and Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now again, this is a dangerous mission. You have two widows, cannot provide for themselves. The land that they had is not growing. No one's been trying to produce crops on that land. And so Ruth says, I'm going to go out and try to find favor in someone's sight that we might be provided for. And so again, time of judges, women unprotected, uh, general selfishness. Again, just the people in general are wicked during the time of judges. This is a risky operation, and so let's, let's see what happens here. Well, verse 3 says, So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Okay, now we start understanding this insider information in verse 1. 
Insider information off to the side. Hey, by the way, uh, Naomi has a relative, Elimelech. Okay, back to the story. She's going, she's wandering, and the Bible says that she just happened to go into the field of Boaz. Now, now why does it say just happened? Uh, the actual Hebrew word there is like the word for fate or chance. And again, you know, you, you good Calvinists, you who love the sovereignty of God, you're like, there is no such thing of chance. You know, I deny all chance. The Bible is wrong here. And what I would tell you is the Bible is right here. And what the, what the author is doing is what we just call good storytelling. This is just good storytelling in verse 3. So imagine we're, we're sitting around the fire, and I'm telling you this, and because of some of you, you love lovey-dovey stories. You're really excited for the romance part. And I say to you, you know, Ruth went out, and as she wandered through the field, by the sovereign decrees of God, ordained before the foundation of the world, her feet moved, again, only because God allowed them to move, into the land of Boaz, which only God allowed them to have. Okay, I could tell this story like that, and it would be accurate, but I would just tell it so much better if I go, you know, Naomi, or sorry, Ruth walked out, and she just happened to walk into the field of Boaz. You get that? That's, that's better storytelling here. And without saying it, it's alluding to the fact that it's God who allows this to happen. We'll see that. Okay, let's move on. This is where verse 4, we begin to meet this character, Boaz. And we see that he's someone who seems to love the Lord in the midst of a wicked generation. He says, may Yahweh be with you. And they said, may Yahweh bless you. And then Boaz notices that, uh, that there's this woman working in the field that's unfamiliar today. And he asks, who is this? Now, there's tension here. The question is, is Boaz going to let this strange woman keep working in the field? And what you notice is that his top servant, his foreman, does not want her there. How do you know this? What does he highlight? Listen, verse 6, it says that the servant says, she is the Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Moabite woman, she is from Moab. What is he highlighting? He's trying to point out that she's not from here. She's a Moabite. And the Moabites and Israelites have been, well, enemies for a while. Uh, they, they have tried, they try to make war and destroy the people of Israel while they're wandering through the wilderness. And so the foreman's kind of leaning into it, like, you know, this Moabite, you know, I don't know if I mentioned that she's a Moabite, but anyway, she is a Moabite, and do you want this Moabite to be here? That's, that's sort of what's, what's happening here between the lines. And so the question is, what is Boaz going to do? What is his response going to be? I mean, Boaz could have done very little. He could have said, this is my field. Again, this is the time in the book of Judges, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. He could just decide to do what is right in his own eyes. He could do the very minimum. You know, there are laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that says like, okay, don't, don't glean the very corners of your field, but leave them for the poor and leave them for the orphan and the widow. Um, and there are, there, uh, elsewhere in Deuteronomy, it says, you know, if you've got crops in the field that you forgot, don't go back and get them, but leave them for the poor and the sojourner in your land. And so Boaz could just be like, hey, come back later. We'll probably have something for you. That's totally the way he could approach this, and he doesn't. What you see as we read through this is strange to us where we don't go pick crops. We go pick our favorite thing off the Chick-fil-A menu. But what happens here is just over-the-top kindness and generosity and benevolence. So take a look. Verse 8, what does he tell her? He says, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field. 
Furthermore, do not go from this one. I want you to stay here. Verse 9. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap. Go after them. Indeed, I have commanded my servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. So I want you to stay here. And I want you to drink water, not like 10 minutes after my servants leave. I want you to get water as they're getting water. Ruth is overwhelmed by this kindness. Verse 9, why have I found favor in your sight since I am a foreigner? Remember, she's from another country. But Boaz is not done. Right? His, his kindness goes greater and greater beyond this. So verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, eat in the corner. No. He says, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had left some. She ate so much that there was some left over. Personally, at their table, relational kindness. That's in all. Verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it so that she may glean and do not rebuke her. In other words, as you're kind of traveling servants through the field and you're collecting crops, let her get up in there with you. Let her collect side by side, not behind. In fact, what I want you to do is I want you to occasionally grab some and just leave it for her to take. What, what does that mean? How many of you parents have ever like baked a cake for your kids and you've got that paddle of cake batter and you know that some of your children have a vested interest in that cake batter now some of you fear salmonella and your kids have never enjoyed that we can work through that another day and some of you are like oh let me get some of that batter off but you know you're not getting all of it off and you hand it to them and you go hey can you wash this real quick and your kid's face like lights up you're like yes this is the real good stuff and the other stuff's fine this is the good stuff again cake batter don't fear salmonella people but that's what's happening here. Purposefully leaving the good stuff to provide for Ruth. And what sort of provision is this? He feeds her for that day, but it's abundant, over-the-top provision. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned. It was about an epha of barley. Barley, kind of like a corn-like substance. You could eat it dry, you could eat it wet like an oatmeal. This is a ton of food. So this is the amount of food that would have fed about 50 soldiers, which means it's going to feed Ruth and Naomi for about a month. And it's not just today. Look what he says. Jump down to verse 21. So Naomi brings the food back to her mom. He, she gives a report. In verse 21, it says, Ruth the Moabite has said, furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. In other words, he says, there's more where that came from. Right, here's food for you for today. Feel free to come back the rest of the days of harvest season. Friends, th this is going to feed these widows for the next year. Right, this is again over-the-top generosity. And the question now becomes, what are we supposed to do with this? How do we interpret this? We want to be good Bible students, right? So there's this kindness, what do we do? And this is where we want to watch out for what people call the, the, uh, the killer bees of bad Old Testament preaching. The killer bees of bad Old Testament preaching where you say stuff like, be like Adam, and then don't be like Adam. Uh, be like David, don't be like Saul. But now this chapter, don't be like David. Uh, that, that sometimes we'll just take the Old Testament 
and we'll turn it into a list of good and bad examples. Now, there are examples here, and you should be like Boaz, but you should do more with this passage than just come away saying with, yeah, I need to be more kind, uh, I need to give more food to people, etc. So do we, what do we do with this? Let me give you two takeaways from this. And we learn it from the way that people talk. So notice first, what does Naomi, how does Naomi interpret this? Verse 19, verse 19, it says, Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today? And where did you work? Right? You, can't you see her eyes bulging as she sees all this food? Well, Ruth tells her, the, man, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi would have gone, Boaz? I know that name, but we'll look at that in chapter 3. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of Yahweh who has not withdrawn his hesed, his loving kindness to the living or the dead. In other words, Naomi, who knows God is sovereign and who knows God shows loving kindness, sees what has happened here and interprets it as God's kindness to her. That in this, what she's seeing is the providential hand of God caring for her. More than just praising the the human instrument, her mind goes upward, showing us what God's kindness is like. That God was the one who we, as we suspect in verse 3, who led Ruth to this field and found a way to provide for these widows. Friends, this is how God cares for His people. When I talk about providence, I'm talking about how God consistently and affectionately cares for His people. Let me say that again, how God consistently and affectionately cares for His people. And it's often behind the scenes. So what do we think? When we think, oh, is God going to work? Is God going to provide? We always think it's going to be in these like demonstrative, uh, over-the-top, visible ways. Like, Lord, I need a car, and then a car falls from the sky. Or, Lord, I need a wife, and a wife falls from the sky. And we think that that is, that is how things are going to work out, and that God's going to just over-the-top do great things. What we find again and again in the Bible is that God is, is much more subtle than that. That God is much more intimately involved when we realize even when it's not these amazing over-the-top things. It's always, though, still miraculous. Listen to some verses that help us understand that our God is not some detached deity, but He's intimately involved with the details of all our lives, working them for our good. So Ephesians 1.11 says uh, that in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So God works all things according to the counsel of His will. That means stoplights, seating charts, promotions accepted and promotions rejected, all things He works according to the counsel of His will. Listen to this verse, right? This, this verse is written by David as he's on the run for his life in a cave. He's on the run for his life in a cave. Now, I don't know what sort of cave poetry you've ever written, but here's what David writes, Psalm 57.2. I have this one up on the screen. Psalm 57.2, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. That is, even in a cave, I cry to God who does what's best for me, who's working all things for me, because that's who he is, and that's what it means for me to be his child. 
Listen to Psalm 37, 25. Psalm 37, 25. I have been young, and now I am old. Amen. For some, no, I'm just kidding. It says, I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging for bread. I, I have lived a long life. God's people don't always have everything, but they always have enough. Or just Psalm 23, 6, right? Surely his goodness and his hesed, his loving kindness, will follow me. And not like follow me like a cute little duck following. That's the same word that's used for the spies of Jericho hunting in Joshua 2. His hesed, his loving kindness will be on your heels if you're his all of your life. Even when life is awful. That's what Naomi's seeing here. She's seeing the providence of God. You know, there's a man named John Flavel who wrote a book, The Mystery of Providence. And he says it's the Christian's duty, especially in times of difficulty, to rehearse the providences of God in your life. When was the last time you sat back and just considered all the little ways that God has cared for you? When you think about the way that you met your spouse, or you think about stoplights that went in your favor or student seating charts that were good for you I, I could think of simple things like my mom becoming a real estate agent in fourth grade so that she would meet John Stead when I was in eighth grade and he would say your son you can sell my house if your son comes to summer camp that's how I become a Christian I, I could think of our me particularly a few years ago we needed uh, help and in high school ministry, we needed an intern, and there was a guy that I'd met before, seemed like a good dude, I've only talked to him once, I was like, Lord, help me run into that guy. I'm sitting on the bench at Grace Church, and I was praying, and I pop up, and he literally walks by, and he goes, what are you doing here? And I go, I'm looking for you, sit down, let's talk about God's will for your life. And he was in our ministry for 40 years, super fruitful, people came, got saved because of his work. That's how God often works, friends. It's his providential care. Do we sit back and worship Him by rehearsing that? That's all the time we have for chapter 2. Let me just say one other thing about chapter 2. I just love how Boaz, Boaz is not content just to say, may the Lord show kindness to you, but Boaz does it. That's amazing. In fact, we do got to look at this. Take a look at verse 11. Take a look at verse 11. Because there is one other question here, and it's this. Why is Boaz being so nice to Ruth? Right? Why is Boaz being so nice to Ruth? And some of you are thinking, I know why. It's because she's pretty. It's got to be. Right? I mean, doesn't this sound like the makings of like a, a cheesy rom-com? Here's a girl from nothing, with nothing and from nowhere. Here's a handsome man with a lot of barley. <laughs> right? It's just as the beginning of, of something you'd see on Hallmark Channel or something like that. Why does Boaz show kindness? Here's why. Take a look at verse 11. He says, she says, why are you being kind to me? He says, look, I know all that you've done. I know the kindness that you've shown to your mother-in-law. Verse 12 then. Now he says this, may Yahweh reward your work and your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. In other words, he says, I know what you've done. I know that you've come under the wings of Yahweh for protection, and now let me show you what it's like to be under his care. 
Let me demonstrate that to you. So Boaz then becomes a conduit, a sort of channel through which the goodness of God comes to Ruth. Friend, I would just tell you that this is not unlike, in fact, this is a very small picture of what it's like to be under the kindness of God himself. Right? Ephesians 1 tells us that God gives his children every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That 2 Peter 1 says he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. That if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that our God is no stingy Savior, but that He provides above and beyond all that you could ask or think. I'm not talking about cars or houses. I'm talking about forgiveness and new life and communion and hope for the future. This is the kind of God that we meet that's reflected in the character of Boaz. Let's jump to chapter 3. Chapter 3, one word, proposal. Proposal. And this is what people often call the weird chapter. Because we celebrated an engagement this morning. I'm guessing that nobody's feet were uncovered in the midst of that engagement story. You'll see what I mean if you haven't seen that yet. Chapter 3, we've got to go quickest through this chapter because it helps us understand the future. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi hatches a plot. She says, my daughter, I shall now seek security for you that I may be well with you. In other words, she says, I want to provide for you. You've cared for me. Help me set up your future. And in verse 2, she says, now Boaz is our kinsman. Now, I need to help you out here, right? Different Bible translations interpret different words better. A better word for kinsman would be redeemer. Would be redeemer because it's more than just a relative. That in the Old Testament... There was an understanding that when you had a relative that was in trouble, there was someone who had the duty of delivering them. And that's what this is talking about here, that Boaz, let me tell you why Boaz is a big deal. He's a redeemer. He's someone who has the right to to marry you, Ruth, so that he might be a protector for us. That's what's going on here. So a better word for kinsman there would be redeemer. That's okay, now you understand we're going there. Anyway, she seeks a plan. Now Boaz is our kinsman with whose maids you were. So you're going to go propose marriage to him. He's going to marry you and he's going to protect us. Now what does she do? Verse 30, wash yourself therefore and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what you shall do. Don't do this. <laughs> Single girls, don't do this. This is, this is a bad idea. Okay, move on. So, now as we go through this, some of you are going like, this sounds like a terrible idea. This sounds very uh, risque. This isn't very apropos. And what I want to let you know is this is, in a way, leaning into the bias that some of the Israelites have about Moabites. You, you know, back in the book of Genesis, there's a man named Lot, and his daughters lie with him, and the oldest daughter names the son Moab, and this scene sounds similar to that scene. And the Israelites like, see, this is what Moabites are, this is why you can't trust Moabites, and yet, then what happens is so above reproach and uh, there, there's no character defects at all. In fact, you would have expected any Israelite uh, to do something wicked here in the time of the judges. And yet here you find Ruth surprising us, leaning into the biases to show what kind of godly woman she is, what sort of character that she has. Now notice this character, verse 9. 
she says, let's, let's keep moving here, verse 9. Uh, Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night because his feet are cold. And he's like, there's a woman there. What do I do about this? And she says, and he says, who are you? I'm sure he had other thoughts going too, like what is happening? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Or the word covering there is actually the same word for wings. In other words, remember chapter 2, Boaz says, May you come under the protection of Yahweh's wings. And what does Ruth say? Hey, Boaz, how about you answer your own prayer? How about you be the means by which God cares for us? Now, this is amazing. Look at Boaz's response. He, he says there, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last hesed, kindness, to be better than the first by not going after young men where the rich are poor. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. So, so in other words, what's happening? Why does, why does Boaz say that what Ruth is doing is hesed, loving kindness? Here's why. By proposing, Ruth is not just saying, oh, let's get married. You're so handsome. We'll have the greatest, most Instagrammable marriage ever with the most cute Instagrammable kids ever. And all my dreams and likes will be fulfilled. That's not, what's, that's not what's happening here. This is selfless marriage. Ruth was not under obligation to do this. She chose a marriage that would provide for her, but would provide for her mother-in-law. And Boaz immediately recognizes it. Immediately goes, this is what loving kindness looks like. This is an incredible marriage that wasn't about how can this spouse, how can this hope and dream be all about fulfilling myself, but even in marriage, you see Ruth is others-oriented. Incredible. And at this point, you start thinking montage and sweet music, and now we have a wedding with a ukulele song in the background, and, and how do we do this? And yet, there's a, there's a needle scratch. Verse 12, it is true that I am a redeemer. However, there is a redeemer closer than I. Uh-oh, right? There is someone closer. There is a nearer relative. It's what theologians call dibs. Someone else has dibs on this situation. And so I could marry you, but I got to let someone else do it first. And in fact, the only way I can marry you is if that guy says, nah, I pass, then I've got the shot. So that's what's going on here. So we know that's what's going to happen. We're like, oh, love is dead. They're never going to get married cliffhanger of all cliffhangers except there's a bit of a spoiler alert we know what's going to happen let me tell you why look at verse 15 Boaz asked her give me the cloak that is on you and hold it she held it out and he gives her six measures of barley this isn't anything like the barley that he gave her in chapter 2 it says when she came to her mother-in-law she said how did it go my daughter she told her all that the man had done for her and here's what Ruth says listen these six measures he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Where have we heard that word empty already? See, what the narrator is showing is even at this point, we don't know who Ruth is going to marry and, you know, where the sunset wedding is going to happen. But we already see that Naomi's not going to end up empty. Why? Because when you're under the loving kindness of God, you never end up empty. Let's move to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is going to be quick. We've got to go fast, and there's legalese in chapter 4. 
You know that legal documents and legal practices never go quick, but here we go, people. Chapter 4, and if there's one word that you could use for chapter 4, it is redemption. Redemption. Remember, we said that it's not just a kinsman. We're looking at redeemers. Who is going to rescue this family? This other guy has dibs. He has first right in the situation. Well, verse 1, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, <laughs> as it may happen, the, the close relative of whom Boaz was passing by was there. In other words, by chance, again, you see the providence of God at work here. Now, I want you to notice the shrewdness of Boaz. He says to the Redeemer, let's chat, pulls him over. He brings 10 elders of the city together and says, let, I have an announcement. I want you guys to oversee this, uh, this court that's about to happen, as it were. Notice the shrewdness of his answer. Here's what, uh, here's what Boaz does. He says, now Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, uh, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I just thought I'd inform you, buy it here before those who are sitting, before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, well, tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. In other words, he says to him, hey, easy land, uh, you know, Naomi's a widow. Do you want that land? If not, I'll take it. But I kind of need to know now. So easy purchase. And this other redeemer is thinking to himself, easy, easy pickup. That's an easy real estate transaction here. I will take that land. Right? And he says, I will take it. And everyone goes, oh, again, love dead. That's what happens here. But notice verse 5. Then Boaz said, well... On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, I, I forgot to mention this, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, is uh, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. In other words, hey, you need to marry this Moabite widow, and you need to raise up the name of the deceased. What does that mean? That means that any children that would have come from Ruth would not have been in this man's line. They would have been in the line of Malon. They would have basically been viewed, it would have perpetuated the genealogy so that the land could remain in the family line. And what does the guy do? The guy says, nah, I don't want any piece of that. That, that, that does not sound like a good plan for my life. I don't want that. That's going to risk my inheritance. That's going to risk my name. In fact, I don't want this so much. What does he does? He takes off his sandal and hands it to him. I don't want this. In other words, when a transaction was done in those days, they would, they would pass off a sandal as if to say, uh, this is firm, this is done. And so you see that, verse 7, this custom, the sandal is passed off. In verse 8, so the closest relative says to Boaz, buy it for yourself and removes his sandal. Friends, then we get to the climax of the story, verse 9. You have to read this with gusto. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. In other words, Boaz says, I will marry that woman. She will be my wife and we will perpetuate the name of the deceased. It's an amazing story. Now, what do we do with this? I want you to contrast these two different redeemers, Boaz and this other redeemer. One of them does not want to risk anything. The other is okay with risking his inheritance that his own name 
might not be perpetuated. One of them is very turned off by someone being a Moabitess. The other is, sees her character. One of them is named Boaz. What's the name of the other Redeemer? Does anyone see it in there? We don't know his name. In fact, in the, the Hebrew, the, the word there that he, the, the, the man walked by, the Hebrew there is Poloni Almoni. Everyone go ahead and say that. Poloni Almoni. Yeah, it's a fun Hebrew phrase. Poloni Almoni. You know what it means? It means like Mr. So-and-so. Mr. Joe Schmo. Uh, some random dude. Right? This, you know, next time you get cut off on the freeway, this Poloni Almoni, what's he doing? Pay attention on the road. And what you see here is you have one redeemer, Boaz, whose name we still know is still remembered as in the line of Christ. You have the other guy whose name is forgotten. Why is that? Because God wants to show us not just what kind of a redeemer he approves of, but what kind of redeemer he is. Think about it. Boaz selflessly sacrifices to rescue those who could not otherwise sacrifice or who could not otherwise rescue themselves. Boaz selflessly gives of himself to rescue those who could not otherwise rescue themselves. Does that sound like anyone you've heard of before? I mean, friends, why does God give approval to that kind of redeemer? By letting his name be remembered? Because Jesus Christ is that kind of redeemer. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the kind of redeemer who comes and gives of himself so that those of us who are in bondage to sin, who could not otherwise rescue themselves, might be rescued and released and welcomed into the family of God and have an inheritance forever because we've been adopted as sons. Oh, what a great foreshadowing of a much greater rescue, of a much greater redemption. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you have a far greater plight than these widows without any sort of food or future. You are in bondage to your sin with the only inheritance being the wrath of God. And yet Christ comes and dies for your sin so that you might be redeemed, bought out of sin and brought to Him in a far greater marriage reflected in the gospel. Friends, that's why God shows us this kind of redemption because God is this kind of redeemer. The story continues as we wrap up. We see the filling of Naomi. Verse 13, what happens? It says, so Boaz took Ruth to be his wife and he went into her and Yahweh enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a redeemer today. In other words, here at the end, you see the, the scene is of a grandma with her gra- bouncing baby grandson on her lap. Naomi, who was empty, has been made full. And that's the story. That's God's provision. Now you might be saying, yeah, but that was a one-time thing. How do I know that's going to work out in my life? That's, that's fair. God promises us, doesn't promise us that this life always ends well. But let's take a look at the very ending of the book as we wrap up. The very ending of the book, right? Isn't this amazing sunset happening, bouncing baby on the grandma's lap as they look at, as they look at the sky, and then we get to verse 18, and you get 
Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz was born Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. And you sit there and you're thinking, this was such a good movie. What a terrible ending. Who wrote this? We're in the writer's room. We're like, you know how we could really wrap this thing up? A genealogy would be awesome here. People love Ancestry.com. So let's, let's get after it. What do, we, uh, what do we do with this? Here's what I'll help you take away. If you miss the genealogy, you miss the book. You miss the genealogy, you miss the book. In genealogies, here's what you have to look for. One of the things you have to look for is what names have previously been mentioned. Okay, so one of them in this genealogy is Boaz. We know Boaz's story. Another name is David. David is mentioned in verse 17, and David is mentioned here in verse 22. But the first name that's actually repeated is this name Perez. Who, who is Perez? He's mentioned here. He's, he's mentioned again in verse 12. What do we do with Perez? Let me give you the shortest version of the Perez story ever. In, in the book of Genesis, book of Genesis, we'll look there now, but the book of Genesis, back in chapter 39, there's a man named Judah. There's a man named Judah who has relations with his daughter-in-law after she dressed up like a prostitute to trick him. And if ever there was a family line that made it seem like they weren't going to make it, that these people are messed up and going to die out and honor, never honor the Lord, it would have seemed like the line of Judah. And yet Tamar has twins, and the firstborn son is Perez. And the only thing you notice about Perez is that his line gets unusual attention and length throughout the Old Testament. So Perez, looks like that line's not going to make it. God cares for them and allows them to endure. Boaz reminds us of Ruth's story. Looks like that line's not going to make it and they endure and survive. For what purpose? To make it to David. To make it to God's plan for the greatest king in Israel. To make it to God's plan to the king with whom he'd make a covenant from which Christ would come. Friends, what's happening here is that God cares for his people, not only because he loves his people, but because he's going to accomplish his plan. And Ruth is not just one-off time that he's done this. He does it again and again and again. Why? Because it's not just a trick he has. It's not a movie he has up his sleeve. It's who he is. God is a redeemer that cares for his people to carry out his purposes. And so why will he care for you? Because you're amazing? Because you've earned his care? No, friends because he's purposed to do so and he's purposed to bring you to himself and he will always do what's best for you because that's what he's promised how do we respond to that I think the only way to respond is the way that Ruth responds in chapter 2 who am I that you would show this kindness to me friends I don't know what's going to happen next in your life I don't know what sort of trials are going to happen. 
I do know this, that if you're in Christ and under the wings of God, under His care, that God is never going to leave you empty and that He always brings His children home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this incredible story which reveals to us so much about Yourself. Thank You for the trust that we can have in You. Thank You for the goodness of Your character that's demonstrated. Lord, how good it is to be under Your loyal love. How good it is to know uh, that, uh, that You always do what's best from us. That there's no good thing that You're keeping back from us right now. Lord, I ask that You would deepen our trust in You. Thank You for Your Son that because we know He died on the cross for our sins, we know You'll take care of all other problems we face. May we honor You and delight in You. May we humbly rejoice in the goodness You've shown us. And may we cling to You even when times are hard. So Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you.